Hi, you're listening to STEM Punk. My name's Tom and there's Christy. Hello. And we have an incredibly cool guest and I'm going to get the guests to introduce themselves because they're much better at that than me, so go for it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Pamela Gay. I am here visiting from the United States where I am, uh, well, the chief cat herder at CosmoQuest.org where we invite you to learn and do science online. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. It, it's kind of cool that it works this way, but I saw a picture of you in a plane and you said, oh, 17 hours later, I'll be in Sydney or something like that. So I just blasted a tweet straight at you saying, oh, if you're free, come and say hi. And here you are. That's amazing. <laughs> it, it was one of these easy things to say yes to. I knew I'd be here. I knew I would have nothing to do this morning except email. And you know, uh, getting to see a new campus, getting to meet new humans, um, all of these things are amazing. And, and who needs to do their email in the morning? Not one single person needs to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've, uh, I've met you before and Christy has met you before through uh, Astronomers Without Borders. Yeah. Um, but not in the, in the human form. So this is, this is pretty cool. Uh, which means we get to ask you some questions and one of them is... Uh, Oh, well, let's start with what you do. What do you do other than what you've already said? What do you <laughs> other do? than herd cats. <laughs> right, right. So, so I, I basically have three different major things that I work on. Uh, the, the first is developing citizen science projects that allow scientists who have too much image data to go to the public and say, public, let me teach you what my science looks like. And can you help me go through these images and mark out the stuff in the images that... We can't yet train software to mark out. And then once we've got the public doing that, we can get sufficiently large data sets that what we're trying to do now is to train machine learning algorithms to then learn from, well, learn from the masses. So one scientist can, with software, help us train thousands of humans who then help us train software. And our hope is that in the next year or so, we're going to be able to start mapping out worlds using algorithms trained by people. Now, now, since I rely on everyone who's willing to click on things to help me get science done, I, I feel this need that I have to treat them the same way I treat my students, the same way I treat an early career colleague. And I need to take the time to communicate the science, to teach them, to mentor them. And this really gets into all the stuff I do in online communications. I'm, I'm co-host of Astronomy Cast podcast, available on iTunes, Google Play, and Ask Alexa to, uh, well, I'm not going to say the magic words because I want you to keep listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> And uh, I'm over on Twitch, getting people engaged in science over there with all the video game players. And when I'm not doing those things, I'm, I'm trying to understand this interplay between humans and science. And I'm working with ethicists and psychologists to understand why do people spend their spare time doing science? And what are the things we need to think about in this day and age where internet security and privacy and data sharing are such concerns? And, and so I'm getting to facilitate and sit on the side of amazing interdisciplinary research and I'm enjoying being their student. Sounds amazing. What an experience. It's, it's a cool. great day job if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> how, much, how much of what you do is your ideas that you come up with and how much is someone else telling you or in a team working together on team things? 
Well, it, it really depends on which part of my day-to-day -day life it is. When it comes to the research questions, most of those come out of sitting with someone from a different field around a coffee table and going, hey, tell me about what you do, and then saying, hey, can you answer this question I've been having, or them going, hey, you do this thing, can you answer this question I've been having? And it's out of dialogue that we come up with amazing ideas. Science is really a collaboration. If you sit alone by yourself, while you may occasionally come up with ideas, you're not going to get nearly as far as you are if you're bouncing ideas mm -hmm. around with someone else. Even Einstein that we hold up as this icon sitting alone in the patent lab. No, he was writing letters back and forth with the most brilliant minds of Europe at the time. Um, when it comes to our citizen science projects, I'm not an expert in all the areas of science that we do. So here it's quite often a, let me tell you what I'm capable of working with my team of programmers to make our software do. And then the scientists say, okay, um, to study this small research field, okay, we shall make it do this. And so they're, they're telling me what the input data is, they're telling me what the outputs are that they need. I'm working with my team of programmers to then build that data pipeline where human beings are part of the algorithm to get from raw images to published science. So how do you get the word out about if you have a new data set that you want people to get involved in? How do you tell the general public? Hello, I'm on your podcast. <laughs> that definitely is a good way. <laughs> Our very, very popular podcast. Oh, yeah. So popular. <laughs> well, I, it, it's... It's not an exaggeration. We, when we launch major things, what we'll do is we'll reach out to the Carnival of Space list of bloggers and we'll reach out to podcasters. We, because we're funded through NASA, we do largely reach out to US-based podcasts because that's, that's who we're required through the terms of our funding mm -hmm. to target first. Um, but then I will sit down and I'll get my team scientists to sit down with podcaster after podcaster and podcaster and talk about what we do. And then we'll write the blog posts. We'll do the social media. We've even done Tumblr. Oh, fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so astronomy cast must be a bit of an exciting thing now. There's lots of astronomy things happening around. Yes. And this is an exciting year for us. Our uh, Our second episode of this season was our 500th episode <laughs> wow. nice. this is our 13th year and and so we're now that we're in our 13th season we're a teenager so i guess we get to start doing the more temperamental science and <laughs> throwing things at our funders and saying you're not the boss of me even though they really are um but uh it's this past year has been a whole lot of, oh, wow, in our season one, season two, season three, I said such and such, and I was wrong. Mm. And as a scientist, I love this. Mm -hmm. I love being able to say, we had ideas, we thought we understood what was going on, and we were basing these ideas on limited data. And now that we have more data, now that we have more understanding, our ideas didn't match the data that came later. And and we have to change our notions. My favorite one is 
I can't tell you how many times in my life I've said the water of the earth was brought to us by comets. No. Mm-hmm. As we get more and more uh, measurements of the ratios of different kinds of water in the comets, we're realizing that doesn't match our planet. And so, no, it was probably meteorites hitting our world with water trapped in the meteorites. That's so cool. Do you find it's hard um, conveying to the general public that it's actually a good thing and really interesting when we discover we were wrong? Because there's often this attitude that I've come across, at least in science communication, that when we discover a new thing, people are like, see, scientists know nothing and get really up in arms about it. So the way I tend to respond to that is scientists want to know everything. Some people think we know everything. The truth is we don't, and this is why we do science. We want to know everything, and in our quest to know as much as we possibly can, we're going to go down the wrong rabbit hole, and it's going to turn out to have a wombat at the bottom now and then. <laughs> and, and because we're humans, and because we've only been doing digital science for a little over 100 years, or I guess sensor-based, photograph-based, it wasn't even digital that long, mm. I, it's all still new and shiny and we all make mistakes we, when we don't have enough data and, and we're just going to keep going we're going to keep figuring things out until our understanding matches every single observable we have for this one small thing for that one small thing and then we're going to start pooling the small things together and get bigger and bigger understandings and, and there's certain concepts that seem like they should be simple, like convection. Understanding in detail how lava lamps move. I, I can do hand-wavy bits of it's a thermo process and it's density and it's this and it's that, but I can't take a snapshot of a cold lava lamp and turn on the heat and tell you exactly how it's going to work. And I can't tell you using computer models exactly how convection in a star works. I can just tell you there's a section that we label the convective layer. Mm. <laughs> and and it's going to take a while to fill in all these gaps and be able to understand in detail even kitchen science. I love I love you you see uh headlines in newspapers breakthrough baffles boffins or something like that. <laughs> I was like no like it, yes, but that's the point. Like, right. We're, we're this is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what we're trying to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There you go. I, I like that. Um, uh, I like your analogy of your teenagers with, you know, like, <laughs> by, that, by that measure, we are in the terrible twos. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so get ready for some tantrums. <laughs> it's all right. I've got practice at dealing with those now. <laughs> um, do you want to ask uh, Pamela our question? <gasps> our question. Okay. All right. So... Every podcast, we ask our guests this question. It's a very important question. Yes. It is, what does STEM mean to you? So this is one of those things where the acronym now means something other than the acronym. Once upon a time, uh, STEM simply meant science, technology, engineering, and math, and you had STEM professionals. So you have the electrical engineer working at the phone company. You have the... IT guy working at the hospital, all of these people, STEM professionals. Well now, for for reasons that I'm not quite sure all the origin story of, STEM seems to be getting related to educational contexts primarily where we talk about 
I'm off to do a STEM event means I'm probably off to teach science and technology and engineering and maths to people. And so now the, the way it generally gets used is within the educational construct as um, let's expose people to the, the other side of, of all their today, everyday objects. Why does this mixing board work? How does uh, your radio station get conveyed across the outback from dish to antenna to antenna? Um, so it's, it's intriguing to me that, that STEM has gone from just like a general, ah, let's just group all these things into a four-letter acronym, to now being a let's inflict all of these things in the four-letter acronym on all the people. <laughs> it's an interesting take on it. So, it, but it, do you think it still contains the scientists, technology, engineering, and mathematicians? Do you, so, but has it, or has it shifted? So, I, they, do you work in STEM or do you work in physics? This this is where it gets confusing because if I say I work in STEM, there are some people that are suddenly going to say, "Ah, you're an astronomy educator," hmm. instead of, "Oh, you're an astronomer." Mm. And and so I th- think due to the context in which the word gets used more, um, we now have to, the phrase that we use within NASA is subject matter experts. So your science, tech, engineering, and math researchers, doers, people, those are the subject matter experts. And the STEM professionals uh, may actually be the educators. And it all become, it, it, it's now at the very confusing state because <laughs> I think as you go from nation to nation, it has different meetings right now. Mm. And even within different constructs, depending on who your funders is, it's going to have different meanings. Um, language is fluid. Mm. And that's one of those things that has been changing over the years. So I, I think if you say someone's a STEM major, it means they're getting a degree in science, math, tech, engineering to reorder the acronym violently uh sounds so wrong that way (laughs) (laughs) uh but if you say someone's a stem professional it may mean that they're an educator and i think it's fascinating to just watch how that changes stem grants are grants to teach science technology Mm. engineering and math yeah right that's a really interesting take Mm. the world is weird and language is fluid i like the answer um because i've just started teaching or yeah. developing a STEM communication course here at Sydney Uni. Uh, and I've not really considered the fact that it's about education. Yeah. Um, but it sort of is, I guess. Yeah. If, if, you, if you put that filter on, it looks very much like education. I'm marking some of them now where we're marking articles of people who have written stuff about, you know, rock climbing, for example, mm-hmm. with a STEM angle. Uh, and it's very much about I'm going to talk to year 11 and year 12 students about this thing. That the audience is almost entirely young people with an interest in science. Right. Um, translation to themselves, right? They're, yes. They're, they put their their audiences themselves, and that's that's what we are, right? My the audience for Stempunk is basically me, <laughs> uh, because I know how to talk to me. <laughs> uh, so it's the same thing, yeah. We're we're communicating the stuff that we're interested in to people who are interested in that stuff too. Exactly. Okay, that was a bit of a ramble. But it's, that's, it's that's an right. interesting take. I like it. Yeah, I was just thinking I left my previous job working in science outreach and now work in a tech company, in a startup. And kind of technically I work more in the STEM field now. Right. But I feel less 
STEMI because I'm not doing as much education. Right. Which is an interesting, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but yeah. I do miss the edu- the education side and I do feel more separated from the STEM world. Clearly you need to spend more time in Ubers explaining science because it seems like the third <laughs> question in an Uber is always, so what do you do? Yeah. And, and then if you say astronomy, <coughs> they're going to ask you questions. So more Uber yep. rides are needed to fix this problem. We, we got accosted by one guy once. My husband and I were in an Uber and my husband did a PhD in astrophysics, which immediately led to, so is the earth flat? Yeah. <laughs> and my husband's like, um... No. No. And I was studying the stars, not the Earth, but okay. It's still a planet. Yep. And this guy had watched, like, he was obviously really interested in educating himself, so he'd watched heaps and heaps of YouTube videos, but all flat Earth videos. <laughs> so he was convinced that the Earth was flat. Again, you go down a rabbit hole and find a wombat. Yep. <laughs> yep. I would love to be proven wrong. That if someone could prove to me that the Earth is flat, bring it on. Like yeah. if they could do it, great. <laughs> but they can't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like yeah. Anyway, I, li- I like what you, the Uber thing. So there's a, a show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Jerry Seinfeld. Oh has that. yeah, I've read about that. Yeah, so he just goes to his mates because he's got you know famous mates, and they talk about cars driving a car but uh maybe we should get a grant for that we should scientists in uber. <laughs> so we should just get lots of money just go take uber trips everywhere all day every day and just talk that would be uber a great drivers. youtube series it would be we should we should pivot yeah let's do it <laughs> scientists what is it scientists in uber there's got to be a better way than that but yeah basically you get money to <laughs> talk to uber drivers i like it i'd be down for it yeah let's do it um that's a stem project yes, yes. <laughs> So uh, we have another question, another couple of questions for you. Uh, this was asked by our previous guest. And uh, after you answer this, I'm going to give you a chance to ask a question for our next guest. All right. I, I really like this. I like the idea yeah, of yeah. an anonymous question to someone mm. else. Uh, we had Professor Brian Schmidt on this podcast oh, yeah. a while ago. And he asked a great question yeah. <laughs> uh, to the next person who we didn't know who it was. But I love the idea of just saying, oh, here's a question from Brian Schmidt. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, so our next guest, here's a question from Pamela Gay. Yes. Okay, here we go. Is it actually important for all scientists to communicate their research to the public? It's important for all science to get communicated to the public, but not all scientists should communicate to the public. There are people, we all know them, we all hopefully love most of them, um, who are sweet, sweet individuals who should not be allowed to talk to your everyday person. <laughs> I, I have worked with many. They are quite fabulous when you're dealing with them as a peer, but they just don't have it in them to communicate to your random human. And that's okay. This is where we each have our own special skills. I have bad rhythm. My skills do not include drumming or dancing. <laughs> you do not want to include me in a drumming circle. I know my limits. <laughs> and, and we each have different limits. We each have different things that we excel at. I could never be a theoretical physicist on the end, other end of things. That's just not how my brain wraps around information. But where I am very good is observational astronomy, computer science, and communications. Those are, those are my things, my superpowers. 
and you can train people to a certain point to communicate to the public so that when they're sitting uh, in a diner and someone asks, so what do you do? They can explain what they did in the moment. But that doesn't mean you should be putting them up on a stage, putting them on a radio show. And that's okay. This is completely okay. And we need to accept that this is okay and partner with them with someone, either a grad student or a peer. I think every collaboration needs to have that one person that everyone's like, you, wow, you have this superpower. Let's celebrate this superpower. Or you want to have this superpower. Let's train you to have this superpower. And they become the person in the team who is given free reign to use their superpower to make sure that the world understands the science. We need to let our results free, let everyone know what we're doing in our various buildings at the end of the lane that um, they generally aren't welcome in because there's key cards. We need to communicate all the science we're doing, but I don't think all of us have to communicate all the science we're doing. So to flip that question on its head then, do you think that the people that do the communication of the science themselves need to be researchers? They don't have to be. It's, I mean, so, so first of all, my definition of researcher is quite broad. Uh, I, I work with amazing amateur astronomers periodically well, let me rephrase that. I always work with amazing amateur astronomers, but periodically I get to do science with them. It's not that they're periodically awesome. They're just <laughs> awesome. Uh, Sorry, and it's Tuesday. I'm <laughs> exactly. Well, I've had that Tuesday. That's a personal problem. Uh, but uh, they, they, these are people who, uh, there's one in Massachusetts whose day job is a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, if you want to do research on your beating heart, he's the person to go to. But he has an observatory at his house and uses it to observe variable stars, stars that beat. And he does amazing data collection. What an awesome he, sort of connection. Yeah. There. So he, he is a researcher, both in astronomy as an amateur and in reality with his day job. And they're completely unrelated. And he can communicate science beautifully. He helped us a great deal with the eclipse, helping us figure out how to talk to the various medical associations to um, get endorsement of using solar glasses so that you don't go blind looking at the eclipse. And, And so I think that every communicator needs to be someone who's at least gone out and collected data once in their life, even if it means they were working with someone doing it, who that's all they do. And that communicator might be Alan Alda traveling to a facility, an actor who was on MASH when I was a little kid, and now is one of our great science communicators because he's he's constantly curious. Mm. He's not a researcher, but he's been there. He's seen how it's done. He understands, and that does, in a way, make him a researcher. Mm. So there's there's a few science communicators around that probably everywhere that don't necessarily go out and do that uh, who are training them only as science communicators so I guess yeah advice to them is to go out and just do science a little bit yeah or, or at least surround yourselves with people that do science think of it as as field work as a journalist yeah, yeah. journalists deploy with the military they deploy yeah. with scientists some of my favorite um, journalists to talk to are the ones that National Geographic sends out to cover scientists doing some of the most amazing research at Antarctica going in doing cave digs in South Africa recovering the bones of the earliest 
humans and and this field experience where they're there to capture the moment well sometimes they're going to be the one oh look i'm about to step on a bone mm. do the field science at least once as mm. the journalist be part of it learn the safety techniques learn the I, I listened to a podcaster and I need to go back and figure out who it was. I think it was Rose Evelon, but I could be wrong, um, who, who'd gone to uh, Antarctica on a meteorite collection. And, and so journalists do this. Science communicators, we're, we're on that continuum. We have research experiences for teachers. So if you were going to deploy the journalists and have them do field coverage we're going to deploy the teachers with research experiences us science communicators caught in the middle we need to find our own way to see it live and in the moment and be a part of that experience i'd also go uh further and do what christy just did which is flip that on its head to suggest that uh researchers should also go into the field of, <laughs> uh, of science communication yeah step into a classroom every now and then or Again, proper proper scaffolding. Like so, sure. so I'm going to be blunt. I'm terrified of tiny children. Yeah. I am not someone you send in with first graders. They will smell fear. <laughs> uh, they do. They, they do. do. Great with high school and older, and and so it's important for us to acknowledge we all have our limits in human socialization. So many scientists are extreme introverts. Do not torture the introverts. Mm -hmm. But this is where we have to find out where are different people good. Yeah. Um, it may be that that quiet, introverted scientist, he's the one that you send the quiet journalist out to spend a night at the telescope. A fantastic answer. I love it. Uh, do you have a question for our next guest? You get to ask whatever you like. Oh, there's so many questions out there that could be and should be. So um, one, of the, one of the things that we often uh, discuss, and I'd love to hear this person's take, is when we're building all of our astronomy facilities in the outback of Australia, in the uh, Great Plains of the Southern African nations, we're going into places and working with indigenous peoples, Hawaii. Um, what is the most respectful way that we can develop our world as we develop astronomy? Mm, Very that's cool. a good question. I'm excited to ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have to deal with uh, indigenous people I, uh, a lot through your work? So, so I, I've been lucky enough um, to be able to make the choice to work with survey data and spacecraft data. Um, I attract clouds, I attract spacecraft that blow up. Uh, that happened during my d dissertation, mm -hmm. um, an X-ray satellite I really needed did not apparently want to exist. <laughs> um, and, and so I've, I've made the conscious choice to, with the one-time exception of OSIRIS-REx, I mean, it may not be a one-time, but currently it's a one-time exception, um, to work with, with data that's already in hand. Um, and that means I haven't had these issues, but I am someone who who believes in listening and in, in being gifted the opportunity to travel the world 
communicating science and uh, inviting scientists to do citizen science with me. I've gotten to go to Hawaii and sit and listen to the indigenous people and their concerns about the 30 meter telescope. I've gotten to go to South Africa and, and listen to the people who are so excited to leverage the opportunity of observatories in remote locations to bring an inspiration to a new generation to educate them and not only educate them but provide the technological infrastructure to get them bandwidth ideas they've never had before and to see all these different perspectives and to just listen um, it's it's a gift everyone needs to listen mm. we, we have some uh some people that do research in indigenous astronomy here. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a great photo taken by, by one of our researchers called Emu in the Sky. You've probably seen it. It's, this, it's amazing. This and there's huge. a donkey when it rotates. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> so different cultures either yeah, have a sure. donkey, a llama, or an emu. Yeah, right. And I, okay. I spent a night in South Africa watching the sky and talking oh. with friends. And as the Milky Way rotates, you can suddenly see <laughs> all the animals as yeah, you look. Yeah, sure. Um, there's there's a story that the uh, thousands of years ago the indigenous population around Australia somewhere could explain why there are two tides a day. Yeah. Whereas the English and European astronomers could only explain why there's one tide a day. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of years later. So the the knowledge that these people have is phenomenal. Uh, Stonehenge, for example, is not a ripoff because it was an independent <laughs> thing. But there are there are Stonehenge versions in. Uh, New South Wales, and and we have the Mississippian thousands. people in the United States that did the same. We yeah, had yeah. we we refer to it as Woodhenge along the Mississippi. Yeah, right. There's people yeah. all over the world with so much deep understanding. I would yeah, I would love to to speak with these people. Yeah, I would love to learn some things from them. That'd be great. And then like yeah, asking asking them to join us in huge astronomy projects. Like I guess you were talking about the SKA. Yes, exactly. And Australia. And you Australia, have it both for places. Sure, for sure. Um, what an intense experiment that's going to be, already proving to be. And to, to learn that with Indigenous folk would be so cool. And, and it, it offers opportunities, and that's the thing we don't often think about. When, when I was a high school student, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, Westford, Massachusetts, and it's one of the towns that Haystack Observatory straddles. And my high school job was studying Stokes parameters in T Tauri stars that had been observed with radio astronomy. And mostly I was drawing boxes on an image and writing down the numbers in the box and didn't fully understand all the different things I was doing because high school student. Mm -hmm. But it was an opportunity to be in this place getting paid to do something that was high tech. I'm sitting at the biggest screen I'd ever seen until that point in my life. And I grew up in a house next to a dairy farm. And as we build observatories in remote locations all about the world, there's kids growing up in those remote locations whose first high school job instead of being at the local fish and chips shop, instead of being at the local clothes shop, might be at the local telescope. That's so cool. Yeah. I would have loved that as a high school job. 
so I got uh, one more question for you. It's one of my favorite questions. I'm calling it call to action. I, I love hearing about what people do, but also what people do when they don't do that. Yes. So what, what is it that you do that you nerd out about? Like everyone's a nerd. Some people are car <laughs> nerds, politics nerds. Um, you know, what do you, like when you're not doing astronomy, what do you do? What do you want to learn more? Or oh. when people stop listening to this, what do you want them to, like don't stop listening, right? But after it's finished and you hear the theme song, right? What do you want them to go and search <laughs> and look up? I... So I, I have to admit to being a graphical arts nerd. Nice. And, and I mean this in the broadest sense of if you can do it with an Adobe product and it's visual instead of audio, I've probably played with it. <laughs> and, and I also like processing.org, which is, a, a, I don't know if you want to call it a framework or, or an interpreter for Java. And you can make cute little animations that... Um, I'm currently working on uh, one just to learn how to shade things that is Kelt 9b. It's a planet that is snuggled up so close to its star that it's the temperature of an M dwarf star on the wow. outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love doing everything from painting planets, pulling them in, and then creating from my artwork astronomy scenes. So I guess I paint on the side. Um, you can find me on Etsy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I love playing with graphics and creating beautiful things that um, change how you think about space and are just pretty and you might want to stick them on a t-shirt. And I'm currently working with like a real artist. Like he, he's most of the way through an MFA, real artist. And uh, he's doing a whole series of um, like cookies that are actually comets that their tails are their cookie crumbs and uh, solar system lollipops where the the ridges and the lollipop are the orbits of the worlds. And this, this getting to like feed him ideas and see what he does. This, this gets to the steam of STEM, the, the, Bringing See, art that's in. what I'm okay with bringing the A in. Sure, sure. I have a bit of an issue with the A in. I, I get but, it. But I when get it's it. something like that, it's totally great. Yeah, so so I I love doing my own stuff and then finding the the, the writers. I got to be a science advisor for Merle Lafferty's uh, uh, Six Wakes book, which you should all go read. Um, and, and so just looking at this interplay between art and science and trying to figure out the science concepts, is it real? And I love seeing what other people do. Uh, Amy Davis-Roth, she's done a whole series of, of paintings where she's partnered with scientists to do things like explain why a rose smells like a rose through chemistry while painting the rose. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, go down the rabbit hole of, of art and science and see all the people that are out there. Get your own inspiration and just lose yourself in being creative. Make art. I, I have a, a, every now and then I set myself a goal of, of a creative thing for mm-hmm. science. One of them was to write a short story and, ah, and yeah. I did that with, with GAM, which was really cool. Mm. Um, for, for years I've had this line in my head which I wanted to write down somewhere, which was, uh, quick, to the observatory. Um, so then I wrote a story around that line. <laughs> it's a pretty bad story, but it, the line's there. It's published. I'm done. All right. 
Um, yeah, I like that. Uh, with art projects as well, I'm trying to get an indigenous artist actually to yeah. help draw some some science related images so that then I can put those on worksheets that I hand out to students all the time because we we need to talk about indigenous science we need to talk about women in science and all that sort yeah. of stuff we do that with students here um, so yeah one of the ways I want to do that is to collaborate with someone to make indigenous science art right which would be really cool and it's currently inktober so there's a ton of artists on twitter right now sharing their science uh inktober yes so there are a lot of artists that in october challenge themselves to do one new ink drawing a day and some of the things coming out of the science art community are truly spectacular, especially the entomology artists. There are people doing photorealistic insects that are stunning. Uh, there, there's so much good science art. And then with conferences, there's often people now that are starting to do sketched versions of the talks where they'll listen to a talk and and do an infographic in real time while the scientist is talking and all these people are on twitter uh go find the one that you love follow them and add something beautiful to your day that has science are you That's doing cool. no i'm not that good with ink I, okay. I i i am a digital or acrylics kind of girl okay so maybe adobe toba yeah that's not a thing <laughs> that doesn't that's work. not a thing <laughs> I may do NaNoWriMo. I was going to say, yeah, have you heard yeah. NaNoWriMo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a challenge. I want to do that one day. Yeah. Not now. <laughs> it's NaNoWriMo, Na- no- National Novel Writing Month. Or, uh, International, I guess. Uh, so I was corrected the other day um, that it's November, um, but I thought it was novel, so I'm not sure. So let's just leave it that we may be wrong. Yeah. You write a bunch of stuff in November. The, yeah, yeah. the the goal of it, whatever the acronym may be, is to write an entire novel in the month of November. It's fair game to outline it before the month begins. It's now. a big ask. It's yeah. a very big deal. And they publish it. Some of them publish it. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. Um, do you have anything else, Christine? No, I don't think so. I'm probably going to think of a gazillion questions once you turn the recorder off. Sure. But right now... I don't have any. And this is why we have social media. So yeah. ask away and yeah. the world can benefit from our Twitter dialogue. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for coming by and hanging out. Oh, it's really been my pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity to get to hang out on your show, get to come to your campus. And thank you. is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.